Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Build one another up in the faith. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be building one another up. A strong church is an effective church. And God's given us tools to build one another up. But you know what? we got to be together if we're going to build one another up. And I can't just lock myself in my room and zone out on Netflix. I've got to engage. I've got to be with other believers. I've got to be with people. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the Gospel of Mark. Join us as Pastor Brian concludes his teaching on Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, in a message titled, The Sure Word of Prophecy. Now, here's Pastor Brian. There's going to be 69 seven-year periods, or that equals 483 years. So from the time of the command, there's going to be 483 years until this event. So here's what we have. The the big question is, when's the starting point? Now, there were two decrees that were given by the Persian kings in regard to Jerusalem. One was given to Ezra and one was given to Nehemiah. The command to Ezra was first. But the decree that was given to Ezra was not to rebuild the city, but to rebuild the temple. So at the end of the Babylonian captivity, when the Jews were free to go back to the land of Israel, they were under Persian rule. Israel was under Persian rule because the Persians had conquered the Babylonians in the meantime. So they were allowed to go back, but they couldn't build the city because the city represented autonomy and, you know, potential rebellion against the empire. But the king allowed them to rebuild the temple. It was their place of worship. But even after the temple was rebuilt, the city was still in rubble. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, we have the story of how certain people had visited Jerusalem and they came back to Nehemiah with a report that it is just in devastation. It's desolate. It's just rubble. And and Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer for the king, the Persian king, Artaxerxes at the time, he was so depressed and so discouraged over this. And he began to pray that God would somehow help him in some way do something to restore Jerusalem. And so when he goes before the king to do his normal work, the king notices that he's depressed. And the king's like, you've never been like this before in my presence. And actually, in those days, if you were depressed before the king, it could mean your life. But he's depressed. The king noticed it. He asked him about it. Nehemiah says, well, how can I not be when the city of my father's lies in rubble? So the king says, well, what do you want to do about it? He says, I want to go and I want to rebuild it. And so King Artaxerxes gives a decree to Nehemiah to go and to restore and rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem, not the temple. So this is the starting point. This is the command to restore and build Jerusalem. So this is when the 483 years start to count down from this moment right here. Now, that's, that's all good to know, but what date was that? Does anybody know the date that Artaxerxes gave that? I mean, actually, somebody decided, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going I'm to 
calculate this out. I'm going to go back into the ancient records, and I'm going to find out when this decree was given. A man named Sir Robert Anderson. He was, uh, at this time, he was the head of the Scotland Yard, kind of like a Sherlock Holmes type of a guy. And uh, he took it upon himself. He's a believer, so he says, I'm going to figure this out. Now, other people have tried to do it. The interesting thing, they've all come out with a kind of a similar sort of a time frame. But Sir Robert Anderson, I, I like to go with his conclusion on it. So based upon his calculations, it was March the 14th, 445 BC, that that decree was given. Our March to us, it would have been called a different thing at the time. But it would be our March, March 14th, 445 BC. So that's the starting date. So the starting date for 483 years is March 14th, 445 BC. Now, Sir Robert Anderson decided he was going to calculate it out in days. And he based the days on the Babylonian calendar of 360 days. And this is what he concluded. That from March 14th, 445 BC... 483 years would equal 173,880 days. And on that day, the next event would occur. That day takes you out to April 6, 32 AD. Now, if you know anything about Passover, you know that it falls in March or April. So it would take you out to the Passover week. We know that Jesus began his ministry. We know exactly when Jesus started his ministry because Luke tells us that his ministry began in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So you can calculate from the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years old. So 30, 31, 32, 33, somewhere around there, this prophecy of these days is fulfilled. And what happens at the end of the, at the, end of the 483 years or the 173,000 days, what happens? Look at verse 26. The Messiah shall be cut off. But back in verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth at the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So that's the event that, that happens. The decree is given here and 483 years later, Messiah will come. And that's what happened. Jesus came at that time. But the prophecy goes on to say Messiah will be cut off. And that's what happened, right? The word here cut off means to be killed or executed. And notice it adds, but not for himself. Jesus, of course, did not die for himself. He died for us. So Daniel gives us the exact day. And this ties us back to Psalm 118. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So that's why those people, they don't even know what they're doing. They're shouting, save us. Oh, son of David, save us. Hosanna, save now. And, and this, they're fulfilling the prophecies of the psalmist and Zechariah and of Daniel. So it, it's all so amazing. It's amazing to me 
that the Jewish people themselves still haven't seen this. I mean, it's right there in their text. If you took a Hebrew Bible and if you could read Hebrew, this is what you would read in it. You can get an English translation of a Hebrew Bible and read it, and this is what you read. This is what it says. But, but the incredible blindness, because, because the text right here, the text literally tells the Jewish people the day the Messiah would come. And he came. And that he would be cut off. And he was. But then look what it goes on to say, which is even more fascinating. So Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So what every Jew should know is that the Messiah had to come before the destruction of the temple. When was the temple destroyed? It was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. Now, notice it says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. There's no question about who destroyed it. We know the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's a historical fact. Everybody knows it. But notice here, there's a prince that's referred to. And look what it goes on to say. It says, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The Romans will do that. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end, until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Verse 27, then he, who is he? He is the person previously mentioned, the prince. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Here's the final seven. So remember, we had 69 seven-year periods to get from the decree to restore and rebuild till the Messiah. There's one seven-year period left. Some people ask, well, how can we believe that, you know, there's a seven-year tribulation period because of this passage right here? This tells us there's one seven-year period left. And the seven-year period is going to be implemented by this prince of the people who are to come. Who is this prince? Well, this prince has not come onto the historical scene yet. He's coming, but I want you to notice that he's connected to the people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary, meaning he's connected to the, to the what was known as the Roman Empire. So... You know, people today, when we talk about Bible prophecy because of the way the world has changed so much, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, we had this pretty clear picture like, you know, the Antichrist is going to come out of the revived Roman Empire, which will be the European economic community back in those days. And, and you know, we just thought that, well, that's exactly what's going to happen. But then the world changed and the Soviet Union collapsed and the Islam arose. And now, you know, now there are people who will tell you, they've written books that the future Antichrist, that's who this prince is, by the way. This person, they will say, well, this person's going to be a Muslim. This person's going to come out of the Islamic world. Um, the text says he's going to be connected to the people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary. Those are the Romans, no question about it. So that brings me to the conviction that Still, everything in the future is going to revolve back around what we knew historically as the region where the Roman Empire had its greatest power. And of course, Rome was the the center of that. So here we have these prophecies that are fulfilled. But this is the second thing that we need to see. These prophecies were part 
one of the prophecy. See, all of these things were part of the prophecy. Now, the Zechariah prophecy, for example. So we read the Zechariah prophecy, right? That, you know, Jerusalem, your king is coming to you. He's lowly, he's humble, he's sitting on a donkey. But we didn't read verse 10. If we read verse 10, we would see that it says this. His dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So you see, Zechariah puts... See, we know it now as two comings. Nobody knew then that the Messiah was going to have two comings. Some Jewish rabbis thought there would be two Messiahs. It was confusing. And this is one of the reasons why Jewish people today reject Jesus as the Messiah because, well, he didn't set up the kingdom. He didn't bring in everlasting righteousness and peace, so Jesus can't be the person. But we see that he is the person there's not two messiahs, there's one messiah, there's two comings. And so what's left to be fulfilled, what's left to be fulfilled is his dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah is saying the messiah is going to come to Jerusalem, he's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he's the one who's going to set up the kingdom that is going to fill the whole world. So when we say we believe Jesus is coming back to establish God's kingdom on earth, we're saying that because that's what the Bible teaches. That's what the prophets taught. That's what Jesus said himself. And we'll see that more when we get to chapter 13. So Zechariah, we see verse 10, tells us the ultimate fulfillment there. And then in Daniel, I want you to flip over, if you're still in Daniel, just flip over to chapter 12 for a second. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is, again, the second part. Remember, the prophecy was that uh, everlasting righteousness, end of sins, reconciliation, all those things are going to be, that, that's going to be the outcome. So look what it says in chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, speaking about now that, that final seven-year period, at that time, Michael shall stand up. Michael is the, the great you know, prince over Israel, he's referred to in scripture, he's an angelic being like Gabriel. He's the great prince that stands watch over the people and over your people to Daniel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. So this is now that, that final period of time. Even to that time, there's never going to be, never was a time of trouble like what is yet to come. And at that time, your people, Daniel, the Jewish people, shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and some, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever. So you see, again, the ultimate fulfillment, the intended end of what the first coming of Christ began is the great hope that we have for the future. This is, our, this is our hope. What do we do in the meantime? Well, what we do in the meantime is, I mean, it's, it's very clear what, what our mission is. And I'm going to give it to you in three points. Number one, get the gospel out near and far. That's what, we're, that's what we're to be about. We are gospel people. We're people that God has saved from our sins and made his children and brought us into his kingdom. And guess what? He wants more people in. And guess how he's going to get them in? Well, one of the ways is he's going to use us. 
And so we need to get the gospel out near and far. And I say that specifically in that order because, you know, we do a lot of stuff that's far. We have worldwide missions. We've talked about that many times before. And that's wonderful. And God's doing great things with that. But we have a mission field right across the street. We have a mission field right up the road. We, uh, everybody who's not a follower of Jesus is potentially a follower of Jesus and somebody that needs to hear the gospel. And so we have got to get the gospel out. And, you know, sometimes we, we make this really complicated. You know, getting the gospel out, you know how simple it can be in some cases where it has to start? It just starts with a friendship. It starts with a cup of coffee with somebody. It starts with, hey, why don't you come over to my house for dinner? It starts with building a a relationship. You know, sometimes, and I know that this is sort of programmed, because I know back in the 70s and 80s and even 90s, I know that when you talked about evangelism and even stuff we would teach on evangelism, you know, it was always, you got 10 minutes with this person, you got to get the gospel to them, you got to get them to say the sinner's prayer, and then you got to move on because there's more people to, you know, catch for the Lord. And in some cases, that's how it works. But, you know, there are plenty of people that, that does, it doesn't work for them. That for them is like, no, I, I, I don't even want to, <laughs> I don't want to talk to that person who's going to be like that. There was a survey done recently. I just read this in a book that was written by actually one of my professors at school. And he, he said that in this survey, they asked uh, non-Christians about conversing with Christians or going to church or things like that. Like, what do you think about that? And the thought was they're, they're going to say, we don't want that. We don't, you know, we don't want to go to church. We don't want to talk to Christians. They didn't say that. This is what they said. They said, we're open to conversations and even to, you know, maybe visiting a church. But here's what we don't want. They're, here's their two fears. Fear number one, they're going to be judged. Fear number two, they're going to be pressured. So you know what? It's not my position to judge people. That's God's. So we don't have to approach somebody judging them. We approach them with friendship and love and kindness and, and that kind of thing. And, and pressure at the, at the end of a 20-minute conversation with a person, do I have to say, all right, let's say the sinner's prayer right now. Come on. No, I don't. Now, in some cases, maybe that's actually the moment has arrived where you will do that. But, you know, I think sometimes Christians, we put pressure on ourselves or somebody else puts pressure on us. And we think that that's what we've got to do. And it gets super awkward. And we're sitting there like, oh, no, this is going to be so awkward when I say this. And it is awkward. You know, look, I've had people, uh, you know, in conversation, I ask them a question or, you know, maybe do you want to know more? Or do you want to pray or whatever? I've had people say yes. I've been in the same, you know, similar kinds of conversations. I've had people, you know, I, I, you want to do this or that and shut your mouth. Or I'm going to punch you in the face. No, I don't want to hear anything more about this. And I'm like, okay, I will shut up <laughs> right now because God's the one who's at work here. I, I don't have to close the deal. That's God's thing. But I do have to open my mouth. I do have to have a conversation. I do have to love people. I do have to befriend people. I do have to have relationships with people because that's how people come to Christ. They come to Christ because other people connected with them. 
And so that's number one. Get the gospel out near and far. Secondly, build one another up in the faith. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be building one another up. We, a strong church is a effective church. And God's given us tools to build one another up. But you know what? We got to be together if we're going to build one another up. And I can't just lock myself in my room and, and zone out on Netflix I, I've got to engage. I've got to be with other believers. I've got to be with people. I've got to have those times. Now, you know, I, I zone out on Netflix sometimes, but, you know, if, I mean, some people, that's just their life. That's all they do. And they isolate themselves and they don't go to church and they're not connected to a community. And subsequently, they're not getting built up and they're not being strong and they're not going to be effective. So we've got to do that we've got to build one another up in the faith and then thirdly and finally you know we just need to live holy lives holy lives that are it's our sacrifice of praise to the lord you know uh, here here's what a holy life is going to do holy life is going to bless you it's going to speak to other people and it's going to please god that's what it's going to do. And so, so we live holy lives. And, and we live these holy lives really in response to God's goodness. I want to live, and when I say holy life, I'm not, you know, that, that can even be interpreted weirdly by some people. You know, holy life just means living in obedience to Jesus. You know, just, just, living the way the Lord wants us to live, just living according to his word, loving him and loving others, that, that's, that's living a holy life. And, you know, God delights in that. And so I do it, yes, because I know it's going to benefit me. I do it also because I know that's the way other people are going to be impacted. But, you know, really, at the end of the day, I, I just want to do it out of gratitude to God. Man, Jesus died on the cross for me. Jesus took my sins upon himself. God loved me so much that he, he sent his most precious possession, his son, into the world so I could be united to him. I just want to say, Lord, thank you. And this is the best way to do it, by living the way he wants me to live and offering up the sacrifice of praise. It's the fruit of our lips as we just give thanks to his name. And so, be encouraged. The prophetic word is absolutely certain. And you can count on it. You can bet your life on it. You can stand on it. And refer to it. Go back to it. Get comforted and strengthened through it. But also recognize that while we wait for these things to happen, we have a job to do. We're on a mission to get the gospel to people so they too can be part of that eternal kingdom that Christ will establish when he comes again the second time. Join Pastor Brian as he shares about this month's resource from Back to Basics. Hi, Pastor Brian here. I wanted to recommend a book that my wife absolutely loves. 
It is a book about Gladys Elward. Gladys Elward was a young woman who went as a missionary to China, and God used her in an extraordinary way. The book is written by Phyllis Thompson, and she is one of Cheryl's favorite authors. So for those of you that might be interested in missionary biographies and the story, especially of how God has used a woman like Gladys, this is a book for you. So I highly recommend A London Sparrow. That's the title of the book, A London Sparrow, the inspiring and true story of Gladys Elward by Phyllis Thompson. Again, this month's resource is a book titled A London Sparrow, the inspiring and true story of Gladys Allward by Phyllis Thompson. You can order the book A London Sparrow by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it and then click on the donate button. When you give the gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book A London Sparrow by Phyllis Thompson to encourage you in God's ability to use you for extraordinary things. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the Gospel of Mark. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.